Hello, everyone. My name is Jason Ramirez, and welcome to the Hit List Podcast, a podcast where me and a guest cross off films for our watch list and discuss them. This is Season 5, Episode 9. Today, I'm joined by producer and host of the Unsung History Podcast, Kelly Therese Pollock. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we get started, I have two questions for you. Mm-hmm. My first question is, what are your viewing habits? Whenever you sit down to watch a movie, do you stick to your favorites or do you watch something new? <laughs> I actually don't watch a whole lot of movies anymore these days. Um, I, I've got two kids and I realized that ever since my kids were born uh, 11 and 8 years ago, I haven't mm. watched very many movies. I watch a lot of TV, but not not a whole bunch of movies. Uh, but yeah, I'd say I, I stick with my my old favorites when I do. Gotcha. Um, you don't watch... Like, do your kids watch movies? Yeah, so I've, I've definitely seen kids' movies. I've seen, like, Lego Batman and stuff. Like, that, that's the kind of <laughs> stuff I watch now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, at least Lego Batman movies. A pretty good movie. Yes. Okay, so my second question for you is, what's something about you people would be surprised to know? So I, I think one thing, uh, I've been thinking a lot about college lately because this movie came out while I was in col- college. And uh, I, I expect a lot of people would not guess that I was uh, an intramural athlete in uh, in really? college. And so I actually played, I was the IM chair uh, for my dorm and I played football. And uh, not just the co-ed football, but I played on the men's football team too sometimes when they just needed an extra person. Uh, So yeah, and I I broke my finger once. The only bone I've ever broken, I broke uh, playing football (laughs) in college. (laughs) That's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah, I was never a sports person. People always expected me to become one because I'm so tall and big. And I was like, no, let me read. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I, like I'm a runner, but I, I'm typically not a team sports kind of person. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get that. That's really cool. I want to brag that I've never broken a bone. So I'm gonna brag about that. <laughs> I think you need to knock on some wood or something if you say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about a film that um, I don't want you to feel old. Um, Kelly, but I was one year old when this movie came out, and you said you're in college. This I was film, in college, yes, we're discussing is Titanic, released in 1997. Titanic is a 1997 American epic romance and disaster film directed and written, produced, and co-edited by James Cameron, incorporating both historical and fictionalized aspects. It is based on accounts of the sinking of the RMS Titanic and stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet as members of different social classes who, who fall in love aboard a ship during its ill-fated maiden voyage. Also starring are Billy Zane, Kathy Bates, Francis Fisher, Gloria Stewart, Bernard Hill, Jonathan Hyde, Victor Garber, and Bill Paxton. This film was on Kelly's watches. Kelly, how have you gone 25 years <laughs> not seeing this film? I mean, at some point, it almost became like a point of pride that I hadn't seen it, I think. <laughs> no, it's it's really odd. So I, I was looking back recently on the Academy Award winners, and I had seen all of the Academy Award winners of the 90s otherwise, uh, mm-hmm. had seen like everything that had been nominated for Academy Awards in the 90s, because I was in high school and college. That was like the time in my life that I was watching more movies than any other time, especially in college, because I had no money, right? And so they had like second run movies on campus and we'd go see them. But this one I hadn't seen. <laughs> that bewilders me so much because 
you know, I was I obviously didn't see the movie when it came out, but I it, it's it was just a staple of of families that they will have the the two VHS tapes that came together <laughs> to, in in their home, and my sister was obsessed with this movie growing up because she didn't care about like the the modern the at, at the present day version she she loved like the titanic part she loved the mm-hmm. high society stuff like the falling in love part and she loved watching the disaster happening she she just loves disaster films in general but to combine two of her favorites romance and disaster she loved it and so yeah. <laughs> i'd seen bits and pieces of it throughout the years um but i don't remember the last time i seen it all all the way th- throughout and <laughs> it's a I, long movie <laughs> it is a very long movie it's three hours and 12 minutes, I believe, the official runtime. And it bewilders me that they want the original vision that James Cameron had was to have it five hours. And then after that, they said, okay, four hours. But then after that, they said, no, no, let's do cut it down to three hours. And he didn't want to go eat below, below that. <laughs> yeah. I, I was complaining on Facebook about the length of it. And one of my friends <laughs> said, have you considered just running your TV into an iceberg? That'll shorten it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, I like your friend. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, so, Kelly, what did you think? Um, I was expecting it to be better than it was. <laughs> wow. So I, you know, I, I guess I, I hadn't seen it. I, you know, for whatever reason, I think my boyfriend in college didn't want to see it, and so we never saw it then. And it just, you know, sort of never watched it since then. And I. I I had never had a deep interest in watching it, but I had always assumed it was just an incredible movie because, you know, it won Best Picture and a million Oscars mm-hmm. and had these great stars in it and music and everything. And so I, I think I went in perhaps with expectations that were a little too high because um, it, it did not live up to those <laughs> expectations I think in my mind. You, wait, you just waited too long. That's why. <laughs> Maybe 25 years ago, I would have been swept up in the romance of it. Uh, I I will say my, so my whole family watched it. My husband had seen it before, but my kids loved it. They, uh, especially my eight-year-old son, he just thought it was just amazing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So they watched it with you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, which meant that it took us five nights to watch it because we were watching oh. it after dinner before bedtime each night. <laughs> and it took okay. five <laughs> nights to get through it. <laughs> I just watched it all again last night. And afterwards, I, because I actually, hold on, I borrowed the DVD wow. from my library. Wow. And it's actually, it's actually two DVDs too. So, <laughs> <laughs> because the first one is like the first half of the movie. And the second one is the second half plus the deleted scenes. Mm. And did you know there are 30 deleted scenes? <laughs> 30. Because orig- like remember, it originally was going to be f- um he wanted it to be 5 hours and they said okay, maybe 4 hours and eventually cut down to 3. And James Cameron introduced the deleted scenes first in the in the special features. He said these were cut either for pacing or for historical accuracy it just wasn't needed or it was just redundant you know and there are quite a few scenes in here that look amazing it looks like the finished product looks like if you just cut it in it would have been fine that's exactly how he intended to show it in the dvd special features but uh for overall i believe he was right in cutting most of them including the alternate ending which i will discuss later because that alternate (laughs) ending 
sucked. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I you know, I think there were things missing. Like as long as the movie was, I think there's stuff that's missing from it that would have helped. But I think you didn't need quite so much time on the ship as it was breaking up. <laughs> <laughs> It took like real time of the ship breaking up. It, so yeah. you said something missing. What what what, do you, what did you think was missing? So I would have, from the sort of romance perspective, would have really appreciated more backstory of both Rose and Jack. You know, we get mm. like a little tiny bit, but I can describe it in one sentence. Basically, I would have liked a little bit more. I would have cared more about them as characters if I'd known just a little bit more about them. Like we don't even know why Rose was in England at all. What's she doing there? I don't know. Oh, yeah. She's an American. Like I, that just it. It made it so they didn't totally feel like real people to me because they just looked like, you know, there was a one sentence description somewhere of, of what they were. And so that that I think if I was going to add anything to the movie, hopefully taking something else out so it wasn't, you know, five hours long, I I would add a couple of scenes that, that would talk more about their backstory. Mm. I mean, there are, yeah, like you said, there are a couple of sentences here and there, like the mother... Rose's mother discusses like uh, your our, your father died. He left us with so much debt. That's why he had to marry this man and and, and whatnot. And you kind of hear Jack's story as he relates like, oh, my parents died, and I decided to travel the world after that. Yada yada. Yeah, I kind of disagree. I don't think it would have been necessary to add more stuff into that, add more backstory story because it's about the Titanic as it happened, and they never they never knew each known each other before this ship happened. Yeah. Um. And so, yeah, it, it, it's really about like, because remember the narrative device is that she's recollecting the story. It's like a flashback uh, as she's telling the crew on the ship that's trying to find the heart of the ocean, what actually happened and where the heart of the ocean may be. So, and that I, I kind of disagree with you a bit. It's like, I understand where you're coming from with it. Yeah. I mean, so it, it might make sense that we don't know more of Jack's backstory, but we should know more of Rose's backstory. You know, and there are scenes in there where she's with her mom or with Cal, where she's not with Jack. Like she, they, there could have just been a couple more sentences somewhere yeah. that just told us a little bit more. For me, I, I, I think it's the opposite for me. Like her backstory was like, okay, we kind of get it. For me, it's like what happened afterwards for her, because mm, yeah. in, in the end, we find out she had the hard ocean the whole entire time, and then. She goes out as like a very old, 100, 101 year old woman, walks out barefoot on, in this ship, has the heart of the ocean, and just goes, ah, and throws it into the ocean, right? And I'm like, that's what they're here for, right? And then when she dies in, in her sleep, she sees a vision of, she sees everyone again from the Titanic, right? And she's with Jack again. And I'm thinking, like, that happened when she was 17. She lived a full life. She lived over a century, just a year over a century. Yeah. She had a whole life after Titanic. She had I, another husband, like a husband had, and she kids. Had kids. <laughs> she had grandkids and that's what she sees when she dies. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's that's what, what that's what always even since, since I was like 9, I think maybe even 7, I'm like where where's her husband? <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that, what messed me up. <laughs> like why did you keep the necklace all that time to then just drop it in the ocean? Like, 
you could have kept it because presumably she never told her mom that she was still alive. She never told Cal she was still alive. So she must have been penniless leaving the ship, right? Like she she was with the third class passengers. Like you could have used that time in to, you know, get back on your feet. But no. Yeah. So that that's actually part of the alternate ending. <laughs> ah, actually interesting. That. So um, I want to talk a little bit more about the stuff. So what did you like in this film? And after we talk about a little bit of that, I think we can go into the ending and the alternate yeah, ending. Yeah. yeah. So what did you like? So, I mean, it was beautiful. It was a gorgeous movie. I like your sister. I think the high society stuff is really fun. You know, sort of just, uh, I think they could have developed more about the sort of class difference, but it was really interesting <laughs> to see the sort of, the way that these first class passengers were living, you know, this, like you forget mm. it's a boat because they're, right. you know, it's just massive in scale. It's beautiful they've got all this amazing furnishings they've got paintings on the boat like it's wild how it's sort of fancy it is the uh, monet the picasso yeah yeah and then you know the third class passengers of course have this just like terrible conditions oh yeah <laughs> so that i thought was was really well done was really interesting uh, I think, you know, it, it's clear that James Cameron really loves the story of the Titanic, the disaster, you know, I thought all of that, uh, the sort of nods to historical accuracy, all of that was really interesting, and I think really well done. Uh, and certainly, you know, it, as much as I had problems with some of it. I I got invested, right? There were like <laughs> my kids were like yelling at this at the screen sometimes, like no, get the lifeboat, put more people in it, you know. And so, <laughs> like we we got into it, even though of course you know how it's going to end. And mm-hmm. having waited twenty five years to watch it, I knew like everything about how it was going to end. You yeah. know, I think there's still a certain like you want to root for people and and you want it to to turn out okay, and so it it still works very much on that level. Yeah, it's something that I think he's very good at. Like he, I mean, he has to be. He he made Terminator, right? And then he made Terminator Two, and then he made Titanic, and then Avatar. You know, he keeps surpassing each time, like with each decade, and so he he's gotten very used to. I guess he's gotten very good at building the suspense. for the characters for the audience because even though some people have seen these movies over and over again they still feel that suspense they still get invested and that's something i believe he's very good at with this film my favorite part is when the ship is sinking and when rose goes to find jack and he's still handcuffed Mm. and she's trying to go find someone but there's no one else in the hallways and just gets that sense of like hopelessness you know yeah she can't find anyone to help her, so she finally gets like an ex. And even as a kid, I'm like, "Oh, whoa!" <laughs> and he's like, "Okay, do some, do some practice swings. Okay, hit this exact same spot." And she misses. She doesn't hit the same spot. Yeah. She like misses by like a uh, like a margin. He's like, "Okay, that's enough practice. Now hit." And she gets on the first try. I was like, "Whoa!" Even last night, like I knew what happened. Right? I knew what happened. But still, I'm still on the edge of my seat when I'm watching it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, no, it it's got those action movie elements that uh, you know you, you you feel like your your heart racing. Like, yeah, are they gonna get it? Are they gonna do it? And yeah, it, it, those things I think are are really fun. And of course, there's good like the cinematography is wonderful, and the the musical accompaniment always helps sort of build that that momentum too. Yeah, and 
like you were saying about the action part, I, I think that's why this movie resonated so deeply with like just both. Well, traditionally, um, when this movie was like came out, people thought it was gonna be a, a movie just just for women because it's a romance. Mm-hmm. They didn't know about the. Dis- I don't think most people expected the disaster part to be so much of a thriller, and so that's why it's by word of mouth more people went to go see it beyond like the ideal audience they had for it. Yeah. So that's why I think is so great about this because you had the romance, you had the historical drama to it. And in the first 10 minutes, there's like the scientific discovery type of film. It kind of mm-hmm. feels like a documentary, you know? And because it kind of was a little bit because they actually did shoot the actual Titanic wreckage. Yeah. And then when it goes into the historical drama and the romance, people like, like that, you know, getting to know the characters and then when it gets to the ship sinking and people trying to fight for survival, yeah. that's the thriller part. That's the adventure. That's the suspense. And it makes sense because it actually happened and people are actually actually trying to fight for their lives, trying to survive. And yeah, that's why I think this movie just did so well. It combines all those elements together. You know, It's not just a romance film. It's not just a thriller film. It's all those in one. But it like, prog- progresses in a, in a way that I believe worked for them yeah well i clearly it made a gazillion dollars so it worked (laughs) for a lot of people (laughs) yeah so who was your favorite character there are a lot of characters in here who's your favorite uh probably molly she's just uh so that's one played by kathy bates and you know Mm, she's she's great she's just spunky and you know doesn't seem to care what anybody else thinks and you know i thought she was really fun so i think she's probably my favorite yeah, I liked um she was new rich. Like she was she's based mm-hmm. on an actual woman yeah. who was nouveau rich. And I like how she didn't like pretend to be anything else beyond who she was, unlike the other women in high class society who thought they were above people, you know. Yeah. They thought like cuz they're upper decks that they're above them. Like physically you are. Yeah. But emotionally you're kind of you kind of below together below the gutter guys come on <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you know she puts uh jack in the tux like she she's willing yeah. to help him figure out how to fit in so yeah it's and she was just a super fun character yeah because they were expecting him to make a fool out of himself but she really helped yeah. him out right there she didn't have to like he was just a stranger to her but she was like no i'm gonna help you out yeah. so she was really cool and the actual woman she actually like commandeered that lifeboat as they were leaving they didn't i don't think they showed too, um that much of it there was like a couple deleted scenes as well mm-hmm. Bishy commandeered that lifeboat from that man who was on that lifeboat with them. So that's why they called her the unsinkable woman. Mm, yeah. So what did you not like? Because I know you kind of, you said, like, what did you want to add? But what did you think could have been without? So what did I not like? I, I did not at all like the scene where Cal is chasing them, shooting at them. <laughs> I thought that was just utterly ridiculous like i get it he's mad and whatever but like focus on saving your own life don't go shooting people who are on a sinking boat (laughs) that just it felt really unnecessary to me so that's probably the the scene that if i had one thing i would cut would be sort of that that sequence that's actually um something that most people have said about the film and i believe like i I agree with you on that that's something that a lot of people agree on because you guys are going to die. <laughs> Don't add ne- unnecessary drama. Get on a lifeboat and get over her. You know, you are 30 years old. She is 17. Get over yourself. Uh-huh. That, that, yeah, that's like the actual ages in like the in the, in the, the characters ages. Like 
get over yourself he is 20 years old like find someone your age <laughs> i know i know it was just ridiculous uh and yeah there was another scene where after he's shooting at them and he stops because he ran out of bullets you remember like his his mm-hmm. his guy was like you good the, the scene after that the guy he goes after him so not cal but the hired agent dude he goes after them next and there's like a whole scene with that right and he actually shoots at them whatever and they cut it from the film because james thought that it was unnecessary like it was already redundant at that point like there's already a sense of danger from the ship sinking they don't need to add another sense of danger because someone's shooting at them so it costs like a million dollars a day to shoot that scene and they kind of just lost the money on that one because it wasn't eventually in the film at all. <laughs> they, including the deleted scenes. It's a, it's a really good scene. It's well produced, you know? Yeah. As it should be. But they just decided not to put it in there. They could have decided that with the Cal shooting too. <laughs> they, they really should have, right? They really should have. <laughs> it did, it's funny that uh, Cameron had a co-editor because it does feel like it could have used just a little bit more editing, just a little bit right. tighter in some places that, that which, really would which have is, helped. Which is funny because I'm about to talk about him as director on this film because it's kind of crazy. I'm gonna. Uh, there's a quote. Um, I'm going to hint at real quick. They tried to... So basically, they said something like this. Um, they said something to him that upset him. And he said, um, you want to cut my film? You're going to have to fire me. You want to fire me? You're going to have to kill me. <laughs> so that's a little hint as to how it was like uh, as I discuss it in the second half of this podcast. Yeah. But yeah. So I know it's been 25 years and we're both used to the innovation of movie making since then. But the, did any of the special effects um, impress you? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it was very clear that they had used actually practical effects where I think nowadays they would have used more CGI and it, oh, yeah. it looked great. I mean, it's the the actual water rushing down the staircase and everything like that's amazing. And, uh, you know, it cost a ton of money, but I'm glad that they did it that way. I think in some ways uh, it looks better than a movie today might look because they never would spend that much money these days to do practical effects oh yeah yeah that's something that you kind of like forget about okay i i forgot about that you're right if this movie was made today the water wouldn't have been real (laughs) 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 they would use like a bunch of special effects they would use a bunch of cgi um but using real water added more sense of the danger like Mm-hmm. You you know that they're about to drown, or you sense the danger of like, don't go down there. The rush, the water is gonna pull you away, or suck you in, or yeah, or whatever. And there were some scenes that look a little outdated, but I'm gonna give them more leniency on that because at the time they extended it as far as they could take it, and it was 1997. So uh, yeah, they were just doing their best they could, and I'm glad they did that because it looks, it still looks pretty good. Like yeah. especially on DVD, it still looks good. I haven't seen it on Blu-ray, though. Uh, we watched it on Paramount Plus streaming, which I do not recommend. That is a terrible service. Of all the streaming services, that is the worst. <laughs> it's worse than HBO Max? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Like wow. the We had watched four nights already, and we got to the fifth night, and it just gave us an error code. And we Googled the error code, and it doesn't exist. It's not a real error code. And we never got it to play on the TV again. So I had to like cast it from my computer. My computer would still play it, but the TV wouldn't play it anymore. So 
Who so it was like why. a TV app that wasn't working? Yeah, but we like deleted the app, put it back on. We tried wow. using like the fire stick. We tried everything and nothing. <laughs> so don't don't go watch it on Paramount Plus. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. I wasn't going to, but now I know I'm, not, I'm never going <laughs> to. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to add about this film before we talk about the production? Yeah. I mean, the one other thing I would add is just uh, I couldn't believe how silly the dialogue was. Uh, you know, I guess everyone else knew this for the past 25 years, but I didn't. Uh, and I just like the things they were saying were so ridiculous. It really took me an, out of the romance a little bit. Can you I give think. an example? Give an example. <sighs> yeah. I mean, the now granted, Rose is supposed to be 17, so she would have said silly stuff, but uh, the scene where he's going to draw her naked and she's like, draw me like one of your French girls, Jack. <laughs> and it's like, oh, come on. <laughs> I just, yeah. Yeah. That's an iconic line, too. Uh-huh. Because it's become a meme. <laughs> it's become a meme. Like, parts of this movie has become a meme. Like uh, I will say I understand much more of the internet now, having seen this movie, because all these... Me- <laughs> like, there were so many moments that I was like, oh, that's the gif. I get it now. <laughs> it's been 87 years. Uh-huh. <laughs> or was it 84? 84, Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 84. Oh, man. Yeah, it's... Yeah, there's just so much meme culture that comes from this movie, because... So many people have seen it, you know. Yeah. It's I would say it's part of like um, the film canon of the Western society. I I believe that. All right, and for me, I guess my comment about this film, having seen it now as like an adult, and after going through the pandemic, you know, two films I believe now resonate with our experience with it is first one is Jaws, um, second one, I believe is also Titanic because in both cases. There were people in charge who did not take the experts' advice at hand. Did not they did not take them um, accordingly because they only cared about their own money. They only cared about their own interests, about their own publicity to even consider the lives that were at stake. Yeah. And so watching this film and seeing that, I was just like, damn. So it's been a thing for, I guess it's just been a human thing for a while now. And we're just, we're still living in that type of thing. And I also, in a more lighthearted sense, I could see it as like the guy who funded the uh, the Titanic. I kind of saw him as like Elon Musk and the Titanic <laughs> as Twitter. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was and, appropriate that we were watching it as like Twitter was imploding. Yeah, yeah literally, like, literally, like, oh my gosh. It, it was just like at the exact same time, exact same time too when people are listening rp twitter and then people are thinking oh is this the last time we're on twitter uh does anyone confess they have a crush on me before we go (laughs) (laughs) uh just stuff like that like this man elon musk really could have just sat back and done nothing but he instead tried to run it and now he's effectively ruined the lives of seven thousand people who are working at that company and i think it should be said he should be investigated for that because how can a man just buy a company and just completely ruin it, run it, run it to the ground essentially within a month and just get 7,000 people out of a job just like that. And that, and if, if he goes, like if he leaves, if he loses that $44 billion, whatever, he'll be unaffected. I know. You know, it won't affect him at all. But like the other the people who worked there for years who developed that website, they're out of a job. You know, like hopefully they'll find something else. Like they hopefully they've garnered enough experience. 
but during this economic time where a lot of layoffs are happening, inflation's high, and not just that, companies are getting greedy with their prices. Mm-hmm. It, I just see like, damn, Titanic allegory here, sir. Yeah, yeah. Full, full speed ahead. Forget the safety. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's all I saw it as. I was like, damn. We're we're living it. <laughs> they're like we are. We're living like, a disaster a- movie. <laughs> a- allegorically. <laughs> but, but also pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Where a lot of people died unnecessarily. Um, so I think that's it for me. Do you have any final thoughts on the, what you thought about the film? You know, I just <laughs> it, it felt like I, I know you were saying that it was so many different things and that's what draw people in. Uh I feel like it was maybe just one too many things. Like it, it would have been a better movie if it was just romance and disaster without the like action and documentary pieces or, you know, like something that there, mm-hmm. there was a way, despite the silly dialogue, there was a way I think to save it for me to be like a truly great movie. And I think it just didn't quite get there. I was listening to a podcast. I forgot the name of it. Oh, I wish I could remember the name. Actually, let me look it up real quick because I, I want to give them some credit. Hi there. This is editor Jason speaking. The name of the podcast is called Unspooled with Amy Nicholson and Paul Shear. I think the premise of the podcast is like if you had to move, send, a mo- um, send a movie out into space so like another intelligent species could see it and understand human society or whatever, which movie would it be? And each episode, they could talk about a different film. Mm. They talk about the context mm. of the film, what was happening in the world around that time. How did the actors get the job? And then what's the legacy of it? And then also like what's significance of the film? So they did one on The Dark Knight, right? And they obviously they loved it because it's a very influential film. Yeah. But then they also said like, it's a little too much movie for me <laughs> because <laughs> it's a lot happens in The Dark Knight. Yeah. Like in the, in the scene they talk about in particular is the scene where, have you seen The Dark Knight? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you remember that scene where he goes out in that boat with all the Russian ballerinas? Yeah, yeah. So, and then, like, he dives into the waters. He can go swim to the airplanes to take him to Hong Kong. He said, like, that scene in particular could have been done without in the film. Because at that point, it just felt like too much movie right there. Yeah. <laughs> so, I think I think that's what your... I, I think that your comment about the Titanic reminded me of that comment right there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I if it were up to me making the movie... I. I think the only reason that that whole documentary framing device is there at all is because James Cameron wanted an excuse to take a submarine down and look at the Titanic. And I feel like you could do without the framing device. Like that adds 45 minutes that isn't really necessary to the story. So James Cameron, if you want to do another cut of the movie, just take out the framing device. (laughs) (laughs) I think he would yell at you. (laughs) (laughs) He would not agree with me. Yes. (laughs) Oh, man. I guess um, I'm ready to talk about what went into this film. We're going to talk about a little about the production of this film. That's the second half of this podcast. A lot went into this film. You know, it's a very influential one. For a while there, it was the highest grossing film in America. It, it was also the most expensive film ever made. So, of course, the, there's a lot of history that went into it. So, but... I do edit this podcast and I'm trying to keep it as minimal as possible. So if it feels like I'm going over a lot, trust me, <laughs> I'm not even scratching the surface on this. I'm going to talk about the cast first. So the fictional characters. So there's Leonardo DiCaprio as Jack Dawson. So Cameron said he wanted someone 
he needed the cast to feel like they were really on the Titanic to relive its liveliness and to, quote, take that energy and give it to Jack, an artist who was able to have his heart soar, unquote. And so Jack in the film, he's portrayed as uh, a poor orphan from Wisconsin who has traveled the world, including Paris, you know, sketching, you know, French girls in a nude. <laughs> he wins two third-class tickets to board the Titanic literally five minutes before they depart, with, along with his friend Fabrizio, his Italian friend. He's attracted to Rose at first sight, uh, and her fiancé's invitation down with them is, at the next evening enables Jack to mix with the first-class passengers for a night. So there were established actors who were considered for, the, for this role. Uh, let me know if you recognize a few of them. There was Matthew McConaughey, uh, yeah. Chris O'Donnell, Billy Crudup and Stephen Dorff. They were all considered, but he felt that they were all too old to play the part of yeah. a 20 year old at the time. Tom Cruise was also interested, but his asking price was too high. <laughs> and Cameron considered Jer- Jared Leto for the role, mm. but he refused to audition. And I'm glad he did. <laughs> that would have been a very 90s movie then. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Sisto did a series of, of screen tests with Winslet. And three other actresses vying for the role of Rose, which I'll discuss when I discuss Rose. And DiCaprio, he was 21 at the time. And he was brought to Cameron's attention by casting director Molly Finn. Hmm. And Cameron said, quote, he read it once and started goofing around. Um, talking about the romantic scene, the first romantic scene. He read it once and started goofing around. And I could never get him to focus on it again. But for one split second, a shaft of light came down from the heavens and lit up the forest. And unquote. Cameron, he, he believed in DiCaprio's acting ability and told him, quote, look, I'm not going to make this guy brooding and neurotic. I'm not going to give him a tick and a limp and all the things you want because he wanted him, he envisioned him as a James Stewart type. Mm. And, and although Jack Dawson is a fictional character, there is actually one of the victims was a Jay Dawson, but it was a Joseph Dawson who was a trimmer in the engine room. And it wasn't until after the movie came out that they found this out. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, there, there was an actual Jay Dawson gravestone. They did a lot of research in this, into this film, so I'm surprised that they missed that one. Yeah, yeah, that is kind of surprising. So then there's Kate Winslet as Rose DeWitt Bucutter. Bucutter? Rose DeWitt Bucutter. Yeah, whatever. It's Rose. <laughs> <laughs> Cameron said Winslet, quote, had the thing that you look for, and there was a quality in her face and her eyes, and he just knew that people would be ready to go to distance for her. But the thing is, he wasn't confident in her at first. Mm. So Rose is a 17-year-old girl, originally from Philadelphia, who was forced into engagement to 30-year-old Cal Hockley. So she and her mother, Ruth, can maintain their high-class status after her father's death had left the family debt-ridden. Rose boards the RMS Titanic with Cal and Ruth as a first-class passenger and meets Jack. Winslet said of her character, she has a lot to give and she's got a very open heart and she wants to explore and adventure the world, but she feels that's not going to happen. Quite a few actresses were considered for this role. There was Gwyneth Paltrow, Winona Ryder, Claire Danes, Gabrielle Enoir, and Reese Witherspoon. And when they all turned it down, Winslet campaigned, campaigned heavily for this role. She sent Cameron daily notes from England, which led Cameron to invite her to Hollywood for auditions. And as the same with DiCaprio, casting director Mal- Mally Finn originally brought her to Cameron's attention. And when he was looking for the woman to play Rose, he was looking for someone to play an Audrey Hepburn type. Mm. And was initially uncertain about casting Winslet, even after her screen test impressed him. And after she screen screen tested with DiCaprio, she was so impressed with him, she whispered to Cameron, like, he's great. Even if you don't pick me, pick him. (laughs) 
And yeah, Winslet sent Cameron a single rose with a card signed from your rose and lobbied him by phone. She said, you don't understand. Uh, she pleaded one day when she reached him by mobile phone on, in his Humvee. Yeah, look at that. He had a mobile phone in his Humvee. I am Rose. I don't know. 1997. <laughs> I think it might have been 1985 at that yeah, point. Yeah, still. He, she said, I am, I am Rose. I don't know why you're even seeing anyone else. And her persistence, as well as her talent, eventually convinced him to cast her in the role. I wonder if she, I mean, she made a lot of money from it, presumably. But, you know, I, it sounded like pretty miserable filming conditions. I wonder if she it regretted was. all that work that she did to get the job. <laughs> I don't know about about what she she said afterwards, but she did uh, get injured during making this film. Yeah, um, we'll talk a little bit about that about James Cameron as a director. Yeah. So there was Gloria Stewart as Rose Dawson Calvert, the hundred year hundred and one year old Rose. So Rose narrates the film in a modern day framing device. Cameron stated, "Quote: In order to see the present and the past, I decided to create a fictional survivor who is close to one hundred and one years years old." And she connects us in a way through history. Yeah, so the 100-year-old Rose gives Lovett information regarding the heart of the ocean after he discovers a new drawing of her in the wreck. She shares the story of her time aboard the ship and speaks about her relationship with Jack for the first time since the sinking. At 87, Gloria Stewart has to be made up to look older for the role. And when, he, when they were talking about casting Stewart, Cameron stated, My casting director found her. She was sent out on a mission to find retired actresses from the golden age of the 30s and 40s. He considered uh, Faye Ray for the role, mm. and he also didn't know who Gloria Stewart was. But he said, but Stewart was just so into it and so lucid and has such a great spirit. And I saw the connection between her spirit and Winslet's spirit. I saw this, it's a French word, I don't know, joie de vivre in both of them, that I thought the audience would be able to make that cognitive leap that it's the same person. Yeah. What'd you think of the old Rose? She was fine. I, I was surprised to learn that she had been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. I was like, I, she was fine. Like, it was fine. <laughs> Clearly, I'm not a huge fan of the, the whole framing thing. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it, it was okay. You know, I, I think I see the the sort of, I, I, they don't seem like they look at all alike, but I, I can see that sort of like same spunk, you know, like that that part does feel, I think, right. Yeah, it's like with I I'm not too into the Oscars anymore too. I've noticed a pattern, but whenever a movie is like really popular one year, they nominate them for everything. Mm -hmm. I guess Titanic was one of those films. The most recent year I can think of is 2016 when La La Land was nominated for everything and almost won Best Picture. But oh no, it was a mistake. It was actually Moonlight who won. I was there when it happened. I was like, what? <laughs> Yeah, so Billy Zane as Caledon Hockley. Caledon? I think it's Caledon. Is Rose's arrogant and snobbish 30-year-old fiancé who is the heir to the Pittsburgh Steel Fortune. He becomes increasingly embarrassed by, jealous of, and cruel about Rose's affection for Jack. The part was originally offered to Matthew McConaughey, and Rob Lowe has also gone to director as having pursued it. So it would have been a very 90s film with Rob Lowe in there. Very, very 90s. I, it might have been better. And that was the one character that just didn't seem like a real person at all to me. It felt very kind of over the top. Yeah. I think that's I think that's what I liked about it though. Like sometimes you just <laughs> need like an over the top character. Yeah. 
So I think a just villain needs, to like, just hate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I think that's what he was there for. And I think he did a good yeah. job with that. Uh, as far as historical people who actually existed, like Victor Garber as Thomas Andrews. So I learned that he actually lived, you know, their testimonies that he actually survived. Hmm. Um, there were sightings of Andrews after the moment when he was in his smoking room and just adjusting the clock. He stayed in there for some time to gather spots. Then he continued assisting with the evacuation. And there's another reported sighting of Andrews throwing deck chairs into the ocean for passengers to use as floating devices. And he was last seen leaving the ship at the last moment. Mm. So, he actually survived. And Ewan Stewart as first officer, Willie Murdoch, he's the guy that shot the Irishman by accident. Mm -hmm. So, he he was based on an act, that was an actual person. His nephew, the the actual person's nephew, saw the film and he objected to his uncle's portrayal as damaging to his heroic reputation. A few months later, Fox Vice President Scott Neeson went to Scotland where Murdoch lived to deliver a personal apology and, and present a 5,000 pound donation to Del Beatty High School to boost the school's William Murdoch Memorial Prize. And James Cameron apologized in a DVD commentary, but stated that there were officers who fired gunshots to enforce the women and children for his policy. Hmm. And according to Cameron, his depiction of Murdoch is that of an honorable man, not a man gone bad or a cowardly murderer. He added, uh, I'm not sure you find that same sense of responsibility and total devotion to duty today. This guy had half his lifeboats launched before his counterpart on the port side had even launched one. That says something about character and her heroism. <laughs> and this is my favorite character. This is my personal favorite right here. Liam Tuohy as Chief Baker Charles Yugen. I think that's how you say his name. Um, this is the baker that appears in the film helping Rose stand up after she falls, <laughs> uh, following her and Jack to the ship's stern. And hanging onto the ship's railings as it sinks, drinking brandy from a flask. <laughs> this, I was so happy to learn, was a real person. Wow. Like, for for years, I thought he was just something they made just for, like, comedic relief. Yeah. No. Based on an actual person who survived, by the way, who survived. Wow. So, according to the real guy's testimony, he rode the ship down, stepped into the water without getting his hair wet. And he also admitted to hardly feeling the cold, most likely thanks to the alcohol. <laughs> Hear that, kids? Alcohol saves lives. <laughs> just hearing that, I'm like, all these years I thought he was just <laughs> a dumb character they made to yeah. like have some sense of comic relief. But no, he was real. The reason he survived is because he got drunk. <laughs> and there's also a deleted scene with the baker as well. He's, he's shown throwing deck chairs overboard before taking a drink from his bottle. I want to talk about writing inspiration. So... You are right in the sense that James Cameron shot the actual records because he was he himself was interested in this. You know, before he got into the arts, he went to college for science, you know, mm. and he felt like he was past the point in his life where um, he wouldn't be able to go on an undersea expedition and do what he wanted to do that he originally thought he was going to do. So when he saw the chance to so when he saw the they actually had like IMAX footage of the RMS Titanic wreckage. He pitched it to Hollywood saying, Look, we should shoot their wreckage ourselves too. He tried to seek like funding from them to mm. make a movie. And it wasn't because, he said, it was not because I particularly wanted to make the movie. I just wanted to dive to the shipwreck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it felt a little bit like that. <laughs> yeah, so if, if he, he, he still like made them a ton of money. So I sure. guess they're grateful for him at, 
after that. Uh, he wrote the scriptment for the Titanic film, met with 20th Century Fox executives, including Peter Chernin, and pitched it as Romeo and Juliet on the Titanic. He said, and here's what he said how they were like. He said, they were like, okay, a three-hour romantic epic? Sure, that's just what we want. Is there a little bit of Terminator that? Any Harrier jets, shootouts, or car chases? <laughs> I said, no, 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 it's not like that. And so he said they were doubtful of the idea uh, about its like commercial aspects. But um, they were hoping for a more, t- more, more of a long-term relationship with him. So they decided to give him the green light. Yeah, so he convinced Fox to promote the film based on the publicity afforded by shooting the Titanic wreck itself and organized several dives to the site over a period of two years. He said, my pitch on that had to be a little more detailed. So I said, look, we've got to do this whole opening where they're exploring the Titanic and they find the diamond. So we're going to have all those shots of the ship. Now, we can either do them with elaborate models and motion control shots and CG and all that, which will cost X amount of money. Or we can spend X plus 30% and actually go to shoot it at the real wreck. So you're right. This is, this is just James Cameron just wanting <laughs> to go see this shipwreck. He's always had a fascination with shipwrecks. Yeah, so they shot the real wreck at the Atlantic Ocean 12 times in 1995. And at that depth, the water pressure is 6,000 pounds per square inch. And one small flaw in the vessel's superstructure would mean instant death for everyone on board. So not only they were a high risk, it prevented Cameron from getting high-quality footage that he wanted. And during one dive, one of the submersibles collided with the Titanic's hull, damaging both the sub and ship, and leaving fragments of the ship's propeller shroud scattered around the superstructure. And the external bulkhead of the Captain Smith's quarters collapsed, exposing the interior, and the area around the entrance to the Grand Staircase was also damaged. Jeez. So, yeah. He, he he wrecked the shipwreck. <laughs> <laughs> so, and also the character with of Bill Cat Paxton is a little bit based on James himself. Because mm-hmm. um, you see in the, in the final moments of the film, he, uh, Bill Paxton's character, he says something along the lines of, for two years, for three years, this has been my whole life. It just now I'm finally understanding what actually happened. You know, the human lives that died. And... That's pretty much what Cameron felt when he was here. So descending to the actual site made both Cameron and the crew want to live it to that level of reality. But there was like another level of reaction away, coming away from the real wreck, which was it wasn't just a story. It wasn't just a drama. It was an event that happened to real people who really died. And working around the wreck for so much time, you get a strong sense of the profound sadness and injustice of it and the message of it. He says, you think there probably aren't going to be many filmmakers who go to Titanic. They, there may never be another one, maybe a documentarian. And so he said due to this, he felt like a huge responsibility to convey the emotional message uh, of it and to do part of it right too. <laughs> and he wants to honor the people who died. So he spent six months researching all the Titanic's crew and passengers. He said he read everything he could and he made a timeline of the ship's few days and a very detailed timeline of the last night of its life. He said he had a library filled that filled one whole wall of his writing office with Titanic stuff because he wanted to get it right, especially if they were going to dive to the ship. And that just set the, set the bar higher for him just to get the historical accuracy. Yeah. And I'm going to talk about this real quick because it still bothers me. It doesn't have to do with James Cameron himself. It has to do with a man called Neil deGrasse Tyson. So in 2012, when this film was re-released, 
to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Titanic's shipwreck. It was re-released both, at least I guess, more high definition and in 3D. Mm. And Neil deGrasse Tyson, if you don't know who, him, if you don't know him, he's a scientist. He's a popular scientist. He's used as a figurehead for guests stuff to like explain science. And he also has this reputation of being an asshole about movies and about popular culture. Yeah. For example, he said like Santa Claus can exist because of this and this and that, because <laughs> of the science behind this, because of the radius of that, yada, yada, yada. And it's like, bro, we know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a story we have, okay? Yeah, and right. He, there's there's several other examples, but here's what he said about Titanic. There's the moment when Rose is on this on the ocean. She's on the door and she's looking up at the sky, at the mm-hmm. night sky full of stars. He said those stars didn't ex- weren't in that position in 1912, <laughs> and he said like James Cameron, being the perfectionist he is, should have caught that. And when I read this in high school, right, it's 2012. I read this in high school. I'm like. Does it matter? Does it actually matter that the stars aren't in the accurate position? Who would notice that? Who would notice that that, uh, a scientist who has nothing better to do than to pause the film and say, hmm, off by 30 degrees. Like, (laughs) for those of you who've been listening to the podcast a while, you know how much I hate people like that. I've lived through this, you know. Because who cares? Okay, there's a certain level of disbelief you can, like a suspension of of disbelief you, you hold when you when you watch a movie. Did it really stop for you when you saw the stars? And we're in the night we're sky? like over three hours into the movie at that point too. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, just exactly. get on with it. <laughs> so that ju- that part always bewildered me. Yeah. Yeah, like, bro, you weren't concerned about the dolphins in the beginning of the film that were sitting <laughs> right alongside. You weren't yeah. concerned about that. Even then, they were there for like a second and they were gone. Like, yeah. okay. Uh, but that was it. The stars in the night sky. Yep. Bro. Grow up, dude. Grow up. <laughs> it's a movie, okay? It's not a documentary. It's a movie. Yeah. I just had to, I just had to discuss this because it's just so... <laughs> It's just so annoying, you know, like Fabrizio. <laughs> okay, not uh, like Fabrizio. He, I, I thought he was a sweet kid, but still. I'm sure you're not the only person to ever be annoyed by Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's see. Oh, so for the scale modeling of this movie, they use scale models. Harland and Wolf, the RMS Titanic's builders, opened their private archives to the crew, sharing blueprints that they were, that they were thought were lost. Wow. And... For the ship's interiors, production designer Peter Lamont's team looked for the, for the ad- artifacts from the era. The newness of the ship meant that every prop had to be made from scratch. Mm. So that's that's what caused it to to go up so high. Yeah. Not because of Tom Cruise. Because <laughs> all the props <laughs> had to be made from scratch. That's a good thing they didn't get Tom Cruise then. <laughs> it's a very good thing. <laughs> so the ship was built to full scale. Bit Lamont removed redundant sections on the superstructure and other stuff. Yeah, I'm not too, I'm not a ship person. I don't know bolts. So, <laughs> no, that was just pre-production. <laughs> so, as far as production, it, principal photography began on July 31st, 1996, at Dartmouth, Nova, Nova Scotia, with the filming of the modern-day expedition scenes aboard that 
Russian ship. It's called the Academic Misatov Keldish. I don't know Russian, so <laughs> I, I know it got academic right. And in September 1996, the production moved to the newly built Fox Baja Studios in Ros- Rosarito, Mexico, where a full-scale Artemis Titanic had been constructed. And for the safety of the stuntmen, many props were made of foam rubber. Hmm. And a full-time etiquette coach was hired to instruct the cast in the manners of upper-class gentility in 1912. However, despite this, several critics picked up on anachronisms in the film, not least involving the two main stars. And do you want to know who actually sketched uh, the nude portrait? Sure. James Cameron. <laughs> he's, a, he's an artist. He's a legit artist. I, um, I assume he used someone else as a model rather than Kate Winslet. I guess he just did something. Yeah. Like he just, yeah, made it up. And that was actually the first scene they shot together because everything else was still being built. Yeah. So that was that was like Kate Winslet's and Leonardo DiCaprio's first day on set. <laughs> I guess first stuff on set. Cameron said it wasn't by any kind of design, although I couldn't have designed it better. There's a nervousness and an energy and a hesitance in them. They had to rehearse together, but they hadn't shot anything together. If I had a choice, I probably would have preferred to put it deeper into the body of the shoot. Mm. But they just weren't ready for months, so they just had to shoot something. And that was yeah. the, the first stuff they shot. So I, I was hinting at this throughout this episode. Um, James Cameron throughout this film was known as the scariest man in Hollywood. Uh, do you want to take a guess why? Uh, I mean, it just seems like it was brutal to shoot, so I'm guessing it has to do with that. Yeah, so he became known as an uncompromising and heart-changing, um, heart-charging perfectionist and a 300-decibel screamer <laughs> <laughs> with a megaphone and a walkie-talkie. And swooping down into pieces people's faces on a 162 foot crane. So, for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, sometimes directors will, will have like a seat on a crane, and they'll go over different shots of the area to get more angles or whatever, just to overlook the crew. And sometimes these directors like to have fun and just go down, swoop down into people, and be like, "Hey, what you doing?" <laughs> and Winslet, uh, she chipped a bone in her elbow during filming. And had been worried that she would drown in a 17 meter gallon tank. I think it's, I think it's, I'm not sure if it's million or meter. It's a 17 m gallon water tank. Either way, it was a lot of water. Yeah. And <laughs> in which the ship was to be sunk. She was like worried that she would drown. And she said, There were times when I was genuinely frightened of him. Jim has a temper like he wouldn't believe. Uh, she said, uh, So, God damn it, he would yell at us, some poor crew member. That's exactly what I didn't want. <laughs> And her co-star, Bill Paxton, was familiar with Cameron's work ethic because of his early experience with him. He said, there are a lot of people on set, and Jim is not one of those guys who has the time to win hearts and minds. Yeah. And they, the crew felt like he had like a evil alter ego, said like, they nicknamed, nicknamed him Midge, um, which is Jim spelled backwards. <laughs> and in response to this criticism, Cameron stated, filmmaking is war, a great battle between business and aesthetics. And... I've listened to, I've watched his masterclass on the website mm. and I've, I think I remember him saying like he regrets being such an asshole. Like he didn't have to do, like he could have been half as an asshole and it still would have been made, you know? Yeah. yeah. He later stated like, you know, the film is going to exist, but like people are going to remember how you treated them for the rest of their lives, you know? Yeah. And it's, most of the time it's just not worth it to yell at them. So, he regrets some of his attitude. <laughs> and, oh, I forgot to mention when I was over, over going overview of all my notes here. 
Did you hear? Did you know about the roofied soup? No. Okay. So during the shoot in the academic, the Russian ship <laughs> in Canada, an angry crew member put PCP into the soup that Cameron and various others ate one night in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, and it sent more than 50 people to the hospital, including oh Bill gosh. Paxton. There were people just rolling around completely out of it. Some of them were like seeing streaks and psychedelics. And Cameron managed to vomit before the drug took full effect on him. And Abernathy saw him. He was shocked at the way he looked. He said, one eye was completely red, like the Terminator eye. A pupil, no iris, beat red. The other eye looked like he'd been sniffing glue since he was four. And here's what sucks. The person behind the poisoning was never caught. Oh my gosh. Imagine that. Like your whole crew gets poisoned. And you, can nev- you never knew who it was. And you never know if they're going to do it again. Exactly. That's what we're, that's like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So the filming schedule was intended to be 138 days, but it grew to 160. And it officially wrapped in March 23rd, 1997. And many cast members came down with colds, flu, or kidney infections after spending hours in cold water, including Winslet. In the end, she decided she would not work with Cameron again unless she earned a lot of money. <laughs> so the, several others left the production and three stuntmen broke their bones, but the Screen Actors Guild decided following an investigation that nothing was inher- inherently unsafe about the set. Additionally, DiCaprio said that there was no point when he felt he was in danger during filming, and Cameron believed in a passionate work ethic and never apologized for the way he ran his sets, although he acknowledged, I'm demanding and I'm demanding on my crew. In terms of being kind of maturesque, I think there's an element of that in dealing with thousands of extras and big logistics and keeping people safe. I think you had to have a fairly strict methodology in dealing with a large number of people. Mm-hmm. Which, again, he did later state. Yeah. He kind of regretted most of what he did. Now, the cost of filming Titanic began to mount and finally reached $200 million, At the time, the most expensive film ever. Yeah. Which was a bit over a million dollars per minute of screen time. Like, this was unthinkable at the time. Fox executives, they panicked and suggested an hour of specific cuts from the three-hour film. They argued the extended left would mean fewer showings, thus less revenue, even though long long epics are more likely to help directors win Oscars. Cameron refused, telling Fox, you want to cut my movie? You're going to have to fire me. You want to fire me? You're going to have to kill me. The executives did not want to start over (laughs) because (laughs) it would mean the loss of their entire investment. But they also initially rejected Cameron's offer of forfeiting his share of the profits as an empty gesture as they predicted profits would be unlikely. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) They were wrong. (laughs) And for the special effects, he wanted to push the boundary of special effects with this film and enlisted digital domain and Pacific data images to continue developments in digital technology, which the director had pioneered while he was working on The Abyss and Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Uh, many previous films about the Titanic were shot water in slow motion, but they just didn't look convincing. Mm-hmm. So um, he encouraged his crew to shoot for their 45-foot-long lo- miniature of the ship as if we're making commercial for the White Star Line. And, this, and afterwards, like digital water and smoke were added, as well as like ex- extras captured on motion capture stage. Fun fact, the Terminator from Terminator 2, the one with the liquid guy. Mm-hmm. First person to ever be motion captured. First person. And who directed that movie? James Cameron. Yeah, I didn't know that. And there was also a 65-foot-long model of the ship's stern that would break into repeatedly, the only miniature to be used in water. 
An enclosed 5 million US gallon tank was used for sinking the interiors in which the entire set could be tilted into the water. In order to sink the grand staircase, 90,000 US gallons of water were dumped into the, into the set as it was lowered into the tank. Unexpectedly, the waterfall ripped the staircase from a steel reinforced foundations, although no one was hurt in the process. Jeez. The 744-foot-long exterior of the Armist Titanic had its first half lowered into the tank, but as the heaviest part of the ship, it acted as a shock absorber against the water. So to get it to the set into the water, Cameron had much of the set emptied and even smashed some of the promenade windows himself. The post-sinking scenes in the freezing Atlantic were shot in a 350,000 U.S. gallon tank, where the frozen corpses were created by applying actors on a powder that crystallized when exposed to water and wax was coated on their hair and clothes. That could not have been pleasant. I, I doubt it. <laughs> so the climactic scene, which features the breakup of the ship directly before it sinks, as well as this final plunge to the bottom of the Atlantic, involved a tilting full-size set, 150 extras, and 100 stunt performers. So Cameron criticized previous Titanic films because it showed it like a graceful slide underwater. Mm. He wanted to depict it as like a the chaotic event that it actually was. Yeah. When carrying out the sequence, people needed to fall off the increasingly tilting deck, plunging hundreds of feet below and bouncing off of railings and propellers on the way down. A few attempts to film the sequence with stunt people resulted in some minor injuries, and Cameron halted the more dangerous stunts. The risks were eventually minimized by using computer-generated people for the most for the dangerous falls, which is good on him. Like, yeah, <laughs> someone could have really died. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So during the first assembly cut. Cameron altered the planned ending, which had given resolution to Brock Lovett's story. In the original version of the ending, Brock and Lizzie see the elderly Rose at the stern of the boat and fear she is going to commit suicide. Rose then reveals that she had the Heart of the Ocean Diamond all along but never sold it in order to live on her own without Cal's money. She tells Brock that life is priceless and throws the diamond into the ocean after allowing him to hold it. And she does the same gasp, by the way. She goes, ah! <laughs> the same exact gasp. I, I just had to point it out. She does the exact same exact one. I have to point it out. And after accepting that treasure is worthless, Brock laughs at his stupidity. Rose then goes back to her cabin to sleep, whereupon the film ends the same way as the final version. And in the editing room, Cameron decided that by this point, the audience would no longer care and Brock, Brock love it and cut the resolution to his story so that Rose is alone when she drops the diamond. He also did not want to disrupt the audience's melancholy after the Titanic sinking. Paxton agreed that this scene with Brock's epiphany and laugh was unnecessary, stating that, quote, I would have shot heroin to make the scene work better. You didn't really need anything from us. Our job was done by then. If you're smart and you take the ego and the narcissism, narcissism out of it, you'll listen to the film and the film will tell you what it needs and what it does not need, unquote. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I will say my eight-year-old son, the thing that made him the most upset isn't like, you know, the boat sinking etc it's the throwing the diamond away <laughs> <laughs> it, it upset a lot of people it upset a lot of people uh, it, it upset me too like you're right <laughs> it, he's not alone in that <laughs> oh man um and as far as like the jack and lovejoy fight it's like after jack and rose escape into the flooded dining saloon test audiences didn't like it because it was redundant yeah and for music and soundtrack. So he wrote Titanic while listening to the work of Irish New Age musician Enya. He offered her the chance to compose for the film, but she declined. He then chose James Horner to compose the film score. 
They had both parted ways after tumultuous working experience working on Aliens. Bit Titanic cemented like a successful collaboration between the two that lasted until Horner's death. And for the vocals heard throughout the film, he chose Norwegian singer Sissel Kerjebo, commonly known as Sissel. He tried 25 or 30 different women to do it. He eventually <laughs> chose her. And he also wrote the song My Heart Would Go On in secret with Will Jennings because Cameron didn't want, didn't want any songs with singing in them in the <laughs> film. Celine Dion agreed to record a demo with, with the persuasion of her husband, Rene Angelo. Rene, her husband. Um, <laughs> Horner waited until Cameron was in an appropriate mood before presenting him with the song. After playing it several times, Cameron declared his pr- approval, although he was worried that he would be criticized for going commercial at the end of the movie. Um, well, guess what? <laughs> it's a very popular <laughs> song. <laughs> and as far as the Heart of the Ocean, it was made for the film. Okay. And there are three different Hardy Oceans made. Two of them were used in the film. The third one was not used in the film. It was sold at an auction. It was donated to South Beast Auction House in Beverly Hills for an auction, benefiting Diane, the Princess of Wales Memorial Fund, and <laughs> Southern California's Aid for AIDS. And it was sold to an un- unidentified client for $1.4 million. That's under a lot of money. Ag- <laughs> under the agreement that Celine Dion would wear it two nights later at the 1998 Academy Awards ceremony. Uh. And the necklace has since not been made available for, for public viewing. Huh. And as far as release and reception, I think Gary said like it was very popular. Yeah. Made a total of $2 billion. The first movie to break the billion dollar mark. Wow. And there is a stigma of men crying. So... I think you might remember this. You know, you were in college at the time. It was like a stigma for men to cry at movies. And there were some some movies that were approved. You know, I say that in quotes, approved movies for men to cry at. Yeah. Um, This was one of them. And some men were like mocked for crying at Titanic. Like, I've kind of grown out of that. You know, that toxic masculine thing. Like, bro, it's emotions. Okay. It's okay to... It's not gay to feel emotions, guys. It's yeah. not. <laughs> it's not gay to cry at Titanic. It's a, It's an emotional film. And there was just a huge stigma around it. And there was like many, many comments about it. I kind of think it's a little stupid to say that. Like the fact that there's a stigma in general is really stupid, you know? Yeah. But yeah, it's okay, guys. It's okay to cry. Probably good too. Yeah. <laughs> it's good for you. And home media. Okay. So you want to learn about home media? It was released worldwide in widescreen um, VHS formats in September 1st, 1998, so a year after its release. More than $50 million was spent to market the home video release of the film. In the first three months, the film sold 25 million copies in North America, with a total sales value of $500 million, becoming the best-selling live-action video, beating Independence Day. In that time, it sold 58 million copies worldwide, outselling The Lion King for a total worldwide revenue of $995 million. So everybody but me watched it on home Basically, media. <laughs> listen, I had a guest last season, right? And she's from an area where like she didn't have movies where she lived. Like she grew up in a very rural place and she didn't start watching movies until she was like in college, basically. And she had never seen Titanic until like this year, basically. And I said, that's kind of crazy because like I have my family from El Salvador and Honduras, right? They're from the Campesinos. <laughs> They're from they're from really rural places and yeah. they've seen Titanic. <laughs> That's like probably like the one VHS tape that they'll have. <laughs> so it, it just still surprises me, you know. 
Um, but by March 2005, the film had sold 8 million DVDs. In the United Kingdom, the film sold 1.1 million copies on its first day of release in DVD. Basically, when it came out on DVD, it was the first to ever sell 1 million copies. And at that time, only 5% of households had DVD players. So that's quite impressive. Yeah, I uh, I worked at a video rental store in 1998. Yeah, around then. Oh, wow. And uh, we actually would rent out DVD players because people didn't oh. own them. And you had to put down a deposit of $200 if you wanted to rent a DVD player. <laughs> wow. Would, you, would the money come back once you... Give it yeah, back. yeah. It was just in case you didn't return it. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. I didn't know that. I'm awesome. old, is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get a chance to watch a lot of movies then? Uh, yeah, I mean that that summer. I'm sure that uh, Titanic was at the video rental store, and I could have gotten it free, and I still didn't. <laughs> so that that was just on you then. <laughs> it was very much on me. Yes. Wait. So you said the summer of 1998. So this movie was. Yeah, released or... on VHS September of 1998. So it might have been after you left. Okay. Well, then it's so not you, my you, fault. Yeah, it's not your <laughs> but fault. But in 25 years, I didn't manage to watch it. <laughs> okay. Maybe that first year. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm giving you a lot of flack for this, but I did not see any of the Harry Potter movies or read any of the books for years. Uh, but my excuse was I was raised in a Christian household and we weren't allowed to watch it because it was witches and wizards. Yeah. And then now that I'm older, I just don't want to watch it because I find many of the fans obnoxious and I already know how it ends. Yeah. So I think that's it for me. That that was a lot of details. Um, that's a lot. Yeah. That And I was just scratching the surface, guys. There's over 30 deleted scenes in the film, in the, in the DVDs features that I got. I'm not sure if I already discussed that, but if you watch it and you watch all of it together, all in one go, it feels like you watch the movie all over again, you know? Be a much abridged version. So that concludes our conversation today. Thank you so much, Kelly, for being here. Really appreciate you talking about Titanic, watching it at finally after 25 <laughs> years. That's that's the whole point of this podcast, guys, to watch a film that's been in your watch list for so many years. And yeah. I think this is one of the one of the top ones to watch. So thank you again for being here. Yeah, of course. So I want to ask you this final qu- question. It's an important question. Was Titanic a hit or a miss with you? I'm afraid it was a miss. (laughs) (gasps) It was just so very long. (laughs) A shorter version of it, I would have liked a lot better. I think I can can justify it. I don't think I can, (laughs) actually. (laughs) But I am fine with it being that long. I was still entertained all the way throughout. There are some movies today... They are trying to get into the two hours and a half, three hours, three mm-hmm. hours time frame when they don't need to be. There's not enough story to fill that time frame. I'm talking about you, the Batman. Okay. You don't need to be three hours long. Okay. Yeah. You don't need to be. Titanic, I can I can get into it because there are several characters that are in this film. And it just goes into different genres. But you know, that's just my opinion. And that's your opinion. I'm old enough to know like it's okay to have different opinions. Yes. <laughs> um, so is there anything else you'd like to promote right here? Uh, sure. So I uh, host, edit, 
etc. A podcast called uh, Unsung History, and uh, we we have not done an episode on Titanic. It's not exactly unsung, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I think anyone who enjoys uh, sort of historic fiction like uh, Titanic would probably enjoy the podcast. So uh, you should check out Unsung History. Yeah, I like um, history about people who aren't really known in the mainstream. I really yeah, like it. Yeah, we talk about a, a lot of people that you, you've probably never heard of, um, but they're important in American history or stories that you've never heard of. So that that's sort of what I like to cover. I would like to make the case for the chef in, in this who survived this wreck <laughs> because he actually survived because of alcohol. <laughs> I would like to make that case. It's up to you. It's up to you. But it's I a case. We... I'll, I'll consider it. Okay. I think the people, we need, we need to hear his story. <laughs> so where can we find you on social media? Uh, so for however long Twitter exists, you can find me on Twitter at Feminist Kelly. Uh, I'm also on Mastodon now, uh, fairly recently. And so those addresses are hard, but it's at Feminist Kelly at Z-I-R-K dot U-S, Zirkus. Uh, so you can find me on Mastodon there. Uh, and, you know, just go to unsunghistorypodcast.com and you can certainly find ways to connect with me there. So I also forgot to mention that I like the website for Unsung History. It's amazing. An example, oh, I, example I wanted to strive for. So go check out her website uh, too. So I make that website via a pod page, P-O-D-P-A-G-E, uh, which makes it very, very easy. They, like everything just feeds off the RSS. It's It's wonderful. So, yeah. Okay, thank you, thank you. I'm going to look that up. So that's it for today, folks. You've been listening to the Hit List Podcast. This was Season 5, Episode 9. My name is Jason, and until next time, cross off a new film from your list. <laughs>